Hello and welcome to People to People podcast. My name is Chimzi. I'm Hazel. And on this podcast, we host conversations about partnership between Malawi and Scotland. So we've had a message from our first episode and we're super excited. I think we should uh, read it out, Chimzi. Yeah, go on. I think you should read it out. Okay. Susan Kambua says, I really enjoyed listening to the latest episode of People to People podcast. Please pass on my congrats to Chimsy and Hazel. I love the last series and I was excited to see their back again. Ah, Susan, you've made our day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Smiling. Yeah. Now, you know that you're listening in good company. I think we should get on with the conversation today. This conversation is all about decolonization and I was hooked because it's a really important listen. Yes, it was so good that we wanted to publish this conversation in two parts. So here's the first half. We're going to give you a gap to digest the information. And then we're going to publish the second half of the conversation soon. We asked Amy Blake from Challenges to join Dr. Yona Matemba for this conversation. And let's start with a little bit about where they're coming from with this topic. My name is Amy Blake. I am the former chief executive of Classrooms for Malawi. And then since... May in last year, I've been an associate consultant for Challenges, the Challenges Group. Challenges kind of offer a range of business development services to help enterprises grow. And that's in the UK, Malawi, Uganda, Ghana, and across a range of different countries. So my project that I'm working on there is to link up enterprises with either business support, academic support, peer support, mentoring, shared learning, so that we can help to plug any gaps or any requirements that an enterprise needs or or has that can enable it to grow. So that's the project that I'm working on, and it's great. I love it. My name is Yona Matemba. I'm from Malawi, but I've been living and working in Scotland for 18, 20 years now, probably. I'm a senior lecturer in education and social sciences, and I'm involved in all kinds of uh, teacher training, um, from doctoral to undergraduate kind of thing. But also outside it, I am involved as I'm the kind of current chair of the Scott and Malay Partnership Further and Higher Education Forum. In the last probably year or so, I've been working so much on decolonization. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about decolonization, at least in the way which I see. I'd love to dive straight in there with that, Yona, if that's okay. Amy, I don't know if you've thought much about decolonization. Yes, I mean, it comes up often in the work at Challenges, but I think my interest really in that was peak during my time at Classrooms for Malawi. So in terms of both the link with partnerships with schools in Scotland and schools in Malawi and also in terms of the delivery of the curriculum in Malawi bringing that across into challenges in terms of the partnerships that we develop and how we look at decolonization throughout that and ensure that they are equitable partnerships. So my ideas are coming from a critical reading of the decolonization debate and the decolonization debate uh, has certain assumptions, uh, but some realities are difficult to kind of deal with. So now, in my view, decolonization as a concept is an idea that we ought to challenge what we may call hegemonic epistemologies or hegemonic voices in the academy or in everyday life. 
Okay, I've not heard the word hegonomic before. Can you explain it to me? So, so it's the idea of dominance. So what hegemonic is something that is domineering, but it's domineering in a pervasive way. It's almost like an imposition. So either it could be language, or it could be other forms of culture, it could be other way of doing politics. Obviously, decolonization, as you know, is coming from wanting to fight against colonization itself. Both colonization as an idea, but also as a reality. So for people who have gone through the painful process of colonization, the pain of it is a way of wanting to deal with it, a way of trying to sometimes forcibly wanting to remove it. But at the same time, the people who feel like historically have been the perpetrators of colonization, while they accept that wrong things have happened in the past, and that either the ancestors or their systems have been part and parcel of this, tend to see it slightly differently. There's almost like a fear of decolonization. I recently gave a keynote address on this very issue in Manchester at a major conference, but I was deliberate in this case because I asked a question, which is unusual for a keynote. I say to my audience, I wanted to hear what your views are about decolonization. So I started with some ideas and I stopped and I said, I want you to talk to me. They were so uneasy at first because they didn't know how to deal with me. Because, you know, keynote addresses are meant to be this high level, somebody talking and telling you ideas, da, 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 da. And I come in and say, wait a minute. I know that you have heard about decolonization. I know that you have read about decolonization. I know that you have engaged with somewhat. Tell me what you think and what you're doing or what you're not doing. After some silences, and people started to talk. And what they were saying was, and this gives me these different understandings of how other societies view this. They were open enough to tell me that there's some kind of trepidation about decolonization. They feel it's an attack on them. You know, here well, them meaning the Western world. And, and in some ways I can understand where they're coming from because some of them are saying, wait, I am a good guy. I, I want fairness in the world. I don't, didn't sign up to this sort of thing. And every time the issue of decolonization comes up, I don't know how to handle it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But at the same time, I'm doing nothing. And then I said, oh, I see. That's interesting that you're sharing this with me. Because us who come from the global south, we're looking up to, to critique, and rightly so, the, the, the global north, in particular countries like the UK, uh, Belgium, and so on and so forth, and even America the same, who were the perpetrators historically of colonization, and we want to deal with it. And so I wondered, because I find myself like sitting in two camps at once, because I'm African, born and bred, educated in Africa, and everything African, as you can tell, love it so much, but also at the same time, I've been educated, lived in the West, and, and I kind of understand that world too, to a large extent. So I kind of understand both, and I think it gives me a new perspective to see where kind of the issue, the tensions really are. Because if I never came to the West, and never studied in the West, my understanding of decolonization could have been different. And I'm beginning to understand the reluctance, why decolonization debate has never taken the forceful direction it ought to take. A colleague of mine said, a very nice guy, said to me, I've never colonized anybody. 
And to me, that summarized it. So I don't feel guilty. I don't know why I should be concerned too much about this. This is what he was trying to say. Can I just go back to the issue about Malawi and the work in Malawi? Because one of the things outside education is the whole thing of school Malawi partnership. Classrooms in Malawi and so on and so on, and the good work that Scots are doing in Malawi, fantastic work. I mean, no partnership, as far as I'm aware, has, has this sort of fantastic people-to-people -people connections. And you understand my experience. I've been inside Scott and my partnership for a long time, since 2004. That's how far I've been involved with them. But here's the thing, my view anyway, is that nobody intended it to be that way. And, 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 and I can see the Scott and my partnership tries to fight against it. But the reality is decidedly different. The reality is a, almost a one-sided thing, almost. It's almost tilted one-sided. So we have we have uh, the good intentions and sometimes money and so on and so that come from Scotland uh, through Scottish government funding in many cases and 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 other organisations and people who love Malawi here in Scotland. I mean, and then they go to Malawi and do this fantastic work, but then Malawians see them as simply people who are coming to give them these things. And one asks the question: Where is the partnership? So there is an envisioned partnership, but also there is a realistic partnership. And this is where the tensions are. So when it comes to decolonization, how would you talk about decolonization? So one way of talking about decolonization is here. And I'll stop there for a moment because I'll come back to this point. So here's my critique of both, both Malawi and Scotland on this. Something is lacking. How can it be that people are seeing this very differently? The Scots are seeing it differently and say, we're going to Malawi, it's a partnership. We want to partner with our friends in Malawi, but we also, because of the economic strength of Scotland, and, and the support it, it brings. But then people in Malawi sing it certainly differently and say, oh, we want partnership in Malawi because there are these things that are coming. So the question is this, is partnership all about things? Obviously not. It's about people to people. Then the thing is, what do Malawians bring on the table? What can they bring on the table? So I'll go back to the point of hegemonic um, epistemologies or hegemonic influences and dominance. Isn't there a danger, therefore, that if this imbalance is left the way it is, then there could be perpetuation of the very things we want to fight against when it comes to the problem of now not colonization, but neo-colonization. And then I'm, I want to introduce an idea, anti-colonization. And I want to stop there because I want to talk more about that. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. For me, it feels like there are some serious issues at the root of the topic here. And I think that's the pause that organisations sometimes have, is that you're right in that it's the trepidation of how to start even ha going there and to then, because it it's very uncomfortable and it causes a lot of reflection for organisations themselves in how they've been established, founded, how they're governed, how decisions are taken. And so once an organization has this or shines this lens on itself, then you have to go down the process. I wonder if that's the blocker. It's not so much a blocker, it's just the step that needs to be taken by an organization because it's, it's vulnerable, I guess, is to start having that conversation. It's a long process because there's a lot of 
as you've talked about, there's a lot of parts of this that an, an organization has to look at themselves, but then it's the, the people as well. So it's very, it's a, it's a huge topic, but you're right, because unless it's talked about and unless there are systems or the ways of working change, then do we cover that? You know, what do we do? Do we just pretend it didn't happen? Because <laughs> pretend we haven't started the conversation. So I completely hear what you're saying. And some organisations have been brave and taken that step and started to go down that route and and really changed how they operate, how they and have taken a long, hard look at themselves as an organisation. And so the more of that that we can encourage in terms of the partnership, I think, the better. Yeah, Actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. I'm really so glad you mentioned this because for there's an idea that I'm beginning maybe to promote more, the idea of decolonize yourself first before thinking of decolonizing others. I think that's a really great idea because then if you've been through that process, whereas if you're trying to take an organization through it, at the same time as taking your own self as a person, that's very, um, that's very challenging. And so I think that would be... Because I know I know exactly what you mean. Because having the conversation, people are affronted in a way to say, "I don't, I haven't colonized anybody." <laughs> what we have to do is peel that back to then explain where the what the root is of this and where this is coming from, and allow people to feel comfortable in that vulnerable place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that question I've never decolonized. It's an innocent one. It's a, in almost like a childlike, but innocent, but in slightly good bad way. Because it fails to acknowledge something, historical structures of injustice and dominance that still exist. So there's a there's a history of this, and so while you you yourself, of course, as an individual, you weren't part of it because you were only born 1980. How would you have gone to 1890 to understand this? Surely you are of the present, but you are enjoying a privilege that was created by people of the 1890s, you know, 1790s. So in a way, you're part and parcel of this. It's just like somebody, the question of privilege. You know, if somebody tells you you've got a privilege, you say, me? I work very hard. I wake up five o'clock every morning. I go to work. How dare you suggest that I've got privilege? So I think when we talk about decolonization, we are fighting against systems and structures that have existed, put in place historically, and continues, unfortunately, in the present. So even when we talk about the post-colonial environment, I tend to see it not as a post-colonial environment. I tend to see it, unfortunately, as a neo-colonial environment. And make that distinction. The neo-colonial environment exists in the post-colonial environment. Of course, I know that. But if you make that distinction, we're going to understand that the neo-colonial environment is an environment in which we still live to this day, unfortunately. And you still find the old structures of coloniality or colonialism still exists. Dominance still exists. You try to explain to my Western friend to say, no, 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 I don't mean you, by the way. You and I are cool. We're good. I don't mean you. I mean the structures that created us, the structures that brought us where we are, are the structures that we are talking about here. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it is to be anti-colonial and what practically it would mean to be anti-colonial? The idea of anti-colonialism is a new framework that I am promoting it's not well, because when people talk about decolonization, they tend to assume that the concept of decolonization covers all what we need to know. 
And I'm saying no. So within the wider framework of decolonization as an idea, there are other ideas that come out of it. There are many. And I'll explain a few. One, there's what's called Afro-coloniality. Would you believe it? So Afro-coloniality, the coloniality that remains of Africans perpetrating on other Africans. And this problem is there. Africans colonizing other Africans in the sense of colonization or dominating other Africans. This is a classic problem. And, and I just want to array fears here. So when you talk about decolonization, it's no longer, of course, it is have to acknowledge the historical background here of the West or missionaries, Europeans, imperial powers going to other parts of the world, Africa, Asia, and South America, colonizing people and, and so on and so forth. So historically, this has happened. And the, the ill effects of it continue to this day in some ways. So this, that's one element. The other element is that now we're living in what we call the post-colonial environment, which I've described earlier on. I tend to see it as a neo-colonial environment because a new colonialism has sprung up. And this new colonialism includes Afro-coloniality. And so the problem of coloniality is no longer only a European-led or European-perpetrated one. But unfortunately, that even the former colonized peoples have not anti-colonialized themselves to an extent where they get rid of this dominance, this hegemonic epistemological thinking about the world and place, that they themselves have become a victim of this. Yeah? the influence of colonialism had been so endemic in the African or in the colonized that he or she begins to believe in his own suffering as the norm and is unable to challenge what ought to be challenged. So anti-colonialism, in my view, does two things. One, it challenges the, formal, the formerly colonized and at the same time challenges the, 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 the colonial or the colonial environment. So it's doing, it's doing two things at once. It's telling the African leaders to wake up. It's telling the Western world that historically colonized to say, you need, we need reparations, we need atonement, we need acknowledgement, we need all these things to be done to make sure that the world is fairer, social justice is working, Right? But at the same time, it doesn't leave the formerly colonized ones alone. It looks at them and says, but what have you done yourselves? I see that in some of the projects having run at Classrooms from Malawi in terms of so asking the, the question, so trying to encourage the partnership approach in more depth, but then so in so trying to get the partners in Malawi to be more pro, be proactive in terms of what actually is the need of the community, what are the requirements of the community, have the voices been heard in the community, and for them to all come forward with, you know, what is actually really needed on the ground. And so often the response to that would be sort of what we would want to hear in the global north. 
the easiest thing to do is say, well, actually, yes, we've been told by the community that that's what the requirement is. And so that's great because we've ticked the box of partnership. We've done the sort of needs assessment and the community and those on the ground have said that's what's required. But actually, it isn't because we've been told what the group think we want to hear. And that's exactly what we're talking about is the structures have been repeated and repeated. And and this is really, really challenging to try to understand is how we start to break that down but I completely hear what you're saying there and the organization and the individuals themselves have to really check and question you know is that is that information coming from a structure or something that's been established in the past or actually is that the real fact so much to think about there and there's more next time It feels like a good idea to use this space to collect some resources around decolonization, places that you might begin or continue a journey. So we asked our podcast steering group to share resources that they have found useful, and we're going to list this in the show notes. We're by no means experts, just people committed to having this conversation openly and honestly as we can. So we're presenting this as a collaborative list and it will work best if you can all help us with that. So if there's something that we're missing, we will add it in. And if we've included something that you think isn't helpful, then let us know why. We would love it if you could get in touch with things that have helped you or been part of your journey. And we can also add them to the list. Also, Yona has an open lecture coming up hosted by the Scotland Malawi Partnership called Decolonising the Curriculum why, what and how, which you can attend in person or online. So one thing that it always comes back to is this people to people relationship, you know, the meaningful dialogues between equals, which is not just helpful, but also healing. And I'm really glad that we called the podcast people to people, not one of the other (laughs) names that I suggested, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but we won't mention now. Do you you remember? I there's one that sticks to mind. Yeah, don't say it. No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it there. (laughs) Yes. So don't forget to come back for part two. You can even get involved with it. If you send us a message, we might even read it out. People to people pod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we would love to hear from you. But the absolute best thing you can do is share us with a friend who might like to listen. That is how we get this conversation out there. The song playing us out today is by Bundu Boys. It's called Temba Wenga and it is on the album Muchieza and we will link this in our show notes. Thank you to Rise Kagona for permission to use this song. Rise is Malawian by birth, brought up in Zimbabwe, but Rise now lives in Scotland and we're going to hear more about the Malawian diaspora in the next episode. Guess what? You have Malawians living in Scotland too. What do you do with them? How do you engage with them? The answer to that solves one, one part of the problem. And we hear more about Amy's experience of change. Some of the questions that we'd been asking within the organisation pre-pandemic, it caused for them to come to the surface very, very quickly. And so the organisation and similar organisations like that would have had the option at that point to actually address how they run. This podcast was independently produced by me, Chimsy Dory. And me, Hazel Darwin-Clements, but it is funded by the Scotland-Malawi Partnership. We're very grateful to Amy Blake and Dr. Yona Matemba for the time they gave us to have this conversation.
Ayo, 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 ayo